Welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha, a podcast shared by David Roylance. This podcast is dedicated to guiding you to completely eliminate the discontent mind and the suffering it causes by attaining enlightenment. Learn and practice the teachings of Gotama Buddha that will guide you to fully attain a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. To support this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha or visit buddhadailywisdom.com where you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online learning resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Now, here's our teacher to share more. Sawadikap. Hello and welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha. Today we're going to be studying Chapter 11 in this book, Developing a Life Practice, The Path That Leads to Enlightenment. In this chapter, we dive into meditation to help you develop your practice. Meditation is one of the primary aspects of this path that we use in order to train the mind. And it's important that we dive into this topic and make sure that we really cover the various types of meditation that are needed in order to attain enlightenment, the types of meditations, the types of positions, the various aspects involved with meditating. So that's what this chapter is all about about really diving into this aspect of our practice and ensuring that a practitioner really understands how to do meditation because a person wouldn't be able to attain enlightenment without meditation but that as you guys know you wouldn't be able to attain enlightenment with just meditation either there's a lot more involved than just meditation but meditation is a important component to our practice so i've dedicated this chapter to help us to explore the four types of meditations that the buddha shared in order to guide us on this path and progress on this path as well as the four types of positions that we use during meditation and talk about all the various aspects of meditation that are important to develop as you develop your practice And as always, I'll be pausing at different times to allow you to ask any questions. So if you've been meditating and you've got questions on your practice, this is a great class for you to ask all those questions, as are any of the other classes. But also, if you've never meditated before and this is your first class or the first podcast or first video that you've ever watched, related to meditation, then this is a great class for you because it's really going to help you establish what meditation is and how it helps us in our daily life progressing on this path to enlightenment. So to get us started, I would like to just start with some of the basics of meditation, just really defining what is meditation because we use the word meditation in a lot of different ways throughout the world and we don't even necessarily have a common way of referring to what meditation is. So as we get started here talking about meditation, let's just be sure that we're talking about the same thing. The way that I define meditation is as a technique that is used to actively train the mind to either eliminate certain qualities from the mind or cultivate various qualities in the mind. This is a dedicated, independent, purposeful training session. 
right? So we're either eliminating certain qualities or cultivating certain qualities. And the qualities that we're eliminating are going to be unwholesome qualities. And the qualities that we're cultivating are the wholesome qualities. And as we go through our talk today, I'm going to be sharing the four types of meditations and explaining to you exactly what we're eliminating and exactly what we're cultivating during those meditations. Because the more that you understand what meditation is, which is what we're talking about now, and understand why we're actually meditating, that's going to help you to develop this practice and get the actual results that you need in a meditation practice. So this meditation is an active technique that we're using to purposefully train the mind in this dedicated independent training session. It's important to understand what meditation isn't as well. Meditation isn't exercising or walking the dog or gardening or driving or you know going for a walk or any of these kinds of things while we're doing those things surely it helps to relax the mind it helps to kind of calm the mind it helps to kind of bring some balance to our life if we're working and we're involved in a lot of high pressure activities and doing a lot of things sure these other things definitely help our practice and help us to develop our life practice by having a more balanced lifestyle. But these things by themselves are not meditation. When we're exercising, for example, if we're jogging or we're lifting weights or we're swimming or something like this, that is swimming or jogging or lifting weights. It's not meditation. It's exercising the physical body, which of course, there's some benefit to the mind, but we're not actively working to eliminate unwholesome qualities and cultivate wholesome qualities. We're working to exercise the physical body and get it more toned and more physically fit. If we're walking the dog, we're taking the dog out for a walk and we're helping the dog to relieve itself and perhaps use the bathroom. And while we're out there, sure, we're breathing some fresh air or we're taking in the sights, which is really nice, but we're not actively working in this purposeful training session to eliminate certain unwholesome qualities and arise certain wholesome qualities. And same thing when we're gardening or we're driving. These are great activities for us to create more of a balanced lifestyle, but they're not this independent, dedicated, purposeful training session to train the mind like we're going to be talking about today. So this is what meditation is as I'm describing it here today. And as we get deeper into it, you'll see that the meditations that the Buddha taught are fitting to this definition, this active technique to have a dedicated, independent, purposeful training session. And as you develop your meditation practice, it's important to have a meditation teacher. Just like we learn how to read and write and do just about everything else in our life, we had teachers that helped us along the way to learn our ABCs, to learn you know, three-letter words like can or way, or we got further into words like jump and read and uh, walk and all of these different words that we learned and eventually stringing them together in longer sentences and being able to read books as we advanced in our growth and our ability to learn in our schools. Teachers have played an important role in all parts of our life to help us learn everything in life. 
So meditation is no different, that a person needs a meditation teacher. Today, we try to make things very self-service. We have apps and we have YouTube videos and we have all these different things that kind of spark people's interest and give us a little bit of content and things like this. But in order to really develop a well-developed meditation practice, someone would need a meditation teacher because you're going to have questions and you can't ask questions to an app. You can't ask questions to a book. You can't ask questions to a YouTube video. So while these things are out there and kind of might be doorways for people to enter into meditation, it's really important to have somebody that you have a relationship with that you can say, hey, this is what I'm experiencing in my practice. Is this normal? Is this something that I should be concerned about? Or, hey, I'm experiencing this, but I would like to get even more benefit. What other suggestions do you have for me? So by having a relationship with a teacher, someone that you can seek guidance with, they will be able to help you along this path to develop your practice deeper and deeper. And even if you get back from the teacher, yeah, that's completely normal. That's expected and you'll probably experience more of that. Then that can be a really good confirmation that you're on the right path. Because I've worked with some students who have done the YouTube or app thing for a year, two or three, and they've actually got themselves into a whole lot of challenges. And there's one particular case of a student who actually has developed OCD or obsessive compulsive disorder, where his mind is just completely obsessive about repetitive thoughts. He used to be a doctor and he worked in a really well-known hospital in his city, in his country. And through trying to meditate on his own through all the different YouTube videos, he actually worked himself into a situation where now he can't work. He just stays in his room. He's very depressed and he has a lot of trouble getting away from the condition that the mind has worked itself into. And he's very obsessive and very compulsive. And this is all because he didn't have a teacher to begin with but instead he tried to do this on his own. So as the mind is awakening, there's guidance that each practitioner is going to need. And if you don't have a relationship with a teacher and you just try to do this on your own, then you can run into a lot of trouble. And then as you're getting into challenges, you don't necessarily know that's what you're doing. Sometimes until it's too late, like this gentleman that I've been working with at different times. So be sure that you have a teacher to work with in order to get guidance from and get support from. Even if you have just kind of a cursory relationship where you can contact this person as you're moving along in your practice, it can be really, really helpful. And then there's essentially four positions that we meditate in. Because the body can't meditate in the same permanent position all the time, it needs to have different meditation positions in order to move the body as needed for different situations. There's seated, lying, standing, and walking position. These positions are used for different reasons and different purposes. I can share with you the different ways that I employ these positions, but then it's important for you to actually practice them and decide for yourself which ways work best for you. So for seated position, this is kind of the primary go-to meditation position that most people use, either seated on the floor or seated in a chair or something like this because the seated position, you can have your lower body comfortable, the upper body is nice and erect, it keeps the mind attentive and alert, and you can actively train the mind in this meditation session. 
So that one is really good for kind of the primary uses of meditation and all the different meditations that we do. Lying meditation is essentially that. It's just lying on the floor. If you've ever done yoga and they have Shavasana position, that's what lying meditation position is. I found that this one is really good if for some reason my body is achy or I have a pulled muscle in the back and I can't sit up erect and I need to lie down. Lying meditation is perfect for that because all the muscles in the body are completely relaxed. It's also good if the mind's very tired or, you know, I can't even fathom kind of sitting down the body so tired in the past that I might have used lying position. And the only thing with lying position, though, is you've got to be careful because sometimes the mind has a tendency to fall asleep. It becomes inactive. And lying position I've used in the past as well, like if I was doing seated position and I was sitting cross leg and the legs became tired or the upper body became tired or the muscles became tired, I could just go and lay down and just completely relax the body and continue the meditation from there that you can actually change your position during one particular meditation session. You don't have to just stay in the same position throughout your entire meditation. So I've used these two quite a bit, seated and lying position. Standing position is really nice if the body once again in the seated position is having troubles or challenges or aches or pains in the joints or the muscles and you need to just stretch your legs and stand up, you can either do that as a standalone session and just do standing or if you're seated and you want to transition to standing, you can do that as well. So standing position is another position that you can use to kind of give the body a break from the seated position. I've also used standing position at times where I've maybe been waiting for a bus or I've been waiting in line somewhere and I know I'm going to be in that line for, you know, 20, 30, 40 minutes. I can just close the eyes and stand and meditate through the standing position. So that might be another option for you either at home or at a park or somewhere else that you might be. You can interchangeably use these positions and see how it works best for you. Walking position, I used this quite a bit a lot in the past as well. I used walking position whenever the mind was really active or overactive and the last thing I was interested in doing was actually sitting down to meditate. So if I observed that the mind was overactive and it was time to meditate and sitting down was just not something that the mind was going to be interested in doing, I would go off and do walking meditation for a while and then maybe come back and transition into seated. So you can actually do both of those. Or sometimes the mind was just so overactive that I just did walking meditation all the time. Or sometimes in seated position, the body again, once again, was painful or had challenges sitting. So I would go do walking meditation. Or while I was seated or lying or standing, maybe I got sleepy during the meditation and I could feel sleep coming on. And if I was interested in extending the meditation session, I would go off and do walking meditation. So walking meditation can be a really nice addition to these different positions that you have. And you can employ these different positions based on what your needs are at the given time. There's not going to be just one position that you do all the time. You're going to need these different positions at different times. And then your body's going to change. 
For example, I primarily use seated position, but there was a period of time a couple of years ago where I got into a motorbike accident and I couldn't sit cross leg and all I could do was lay in a bed. So in the hospital hooked up to an IV, I could still meditate because I could do lying position. And then when I came home and I couldn't actually cross the legs and sit on the floor, I could either sit on the edge of the bed or I could lie in the bed and do meditation that way. So these different positions you're going to need at different times because the body is impermanent. It's not steady, constant, fixed state. And as you have injuries or as the body ages, you might use these different positions in different ways. So let me just pause here and see if you guys have any questions on any of the basics of meditation before we go deeper into our discussion today. If you have a question in Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom, you can put that in the comment section and our moderators, Manal, James, or Bassam will see that. And then if you're in Zoom, you can raise your hand electronically and ask any questions or follow-up questions directly. Hi, David. I was wondering, with meditation, is it best to conceive of meditation as a tool rather than a vehicle to have a calming experience in itself, essentially? Yeah, it's a technique or a tool to actively train the mind. Where a lot of meditation is focused on just calming the mind, what the Buddha taught is how to actively use meditation to eradicate certain things from the mind or eliminate certain things from the mind and then cultivate certain things in the mind. He didn't use it just to calm the mind because remember, we've got these three poisons of craving, anger, and ignorance and there are specific antidotes to these and eradicating those and on a deeper level, the 10 fetters is what's going to ultimately create a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy permanently. If we're just calming the mind, but the pollution is still there, then it's going to still inhibit us and cause us problems in life. So it's kind of like if you've got a bucket of water with poison in it and the bucket's shaking and the water's you know rough, well, if you just stop the bucket from shaking and you calm the bucket, well, the poison's still in there. You can't drink the water. So what the meditations that the Buddha taught is that we actually eradicate these poisons out of the water. And by doing that, by eradicating the poisons out of the mind, that will have an effect of calming the mind. But if all our only goal is to just calm the mind and not eradicate the actual poisons that is causing the mind to be shaken up, if we don't eradicate those poisons, then the mind's going to keep being shaken up over and over and over again. So it doesn't make sense to just calm the mind. We need to eradicate what's actually making it disturbed, which is the poisons. This reminds me of a point you made in chapter 11 that the elimination of attachment is what creates contentedness rather than the simple meditation experience itself. Exactly. It's the eradication of craving desire, attachment, that mental longing with a strong eagerness that's causing the discontentedness, eradicating those from the mind is what's actually creating the calmness in the mind, not the meditation itself. So while we're meditating and we're focused on the breath and we keep bringing the mind back to the present moment and back to the present moment and back to the present moment, we're eradicating that craving, desire, attachment, and that's why the mind becomes more calm. Let's go to Basim now for our Zoom questions. Thank you, James. A question from uh, Holly. She says, 
I understand that in seated position, we should not support the back or head. Often, I find that my back gets tired, especially if I have been working outside or being very active. Lying position does make me too relaxed and I fall asleep. In this situation, would it be appropriate to do seated position in a chair with the back supported? Yes, you can do meditation in a chair with the back supported. Just be sure you maintain the attentiveness or alertness in the mind. And if you can lightly touch your back to the back of the chair, that oftentimes will be just enough support to give the body what it needs to release the pain, but also keeps the upper body erect and the mind attentive and alert. But if you need to lean back fully and that's what's needed, then go ahead and do that. But just stay aware of the mind and try to keep it active and attentive. So if you're leaning back in meditation and you're noticing the mind's kind of drifting off and not being as active and attentive, you can shift forward for a period of time and just shift forward, gain some more alertness. And then when you feel the pain in the body again, you can move back and support the back again. So sometimes people have the impression that once you take your meditation position, that it's got to be like fixed and it's got to be frozen and you can't change your position during your meditation session. But you can actually shift around and move around if you need to in order to make a hip more comfortable or a knee more comfortable or the back more comfortable. And that's going to eliminate the pain because if the mind is just experiencing pain, 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 pain throughout the meditation, then you're not going to be able to accomplish the other goals that are part of the meditation, which is eradicating the unwholesomeness and cultivating the wholesomeness. So any kind of pain that you're feeling, remedy that during your actual meditation session. Well, uh, no more questions for now. Okay. So let's go to the next thing that I plan to share, which is sharing with you some of the Buddha's words around meditation, because as you guys know, I'm not interested in you believing anything that I say. What I share with you is to help you to learn and to understand the teachings so that you can learn intellectually. But then you need to reflect on those teachings and then put them into practice so that you can see the truth for yourself. And when you see the truth for yourself, then you will gain wisdom. So here, rather than just believe me that the Buddha actually taught meditation, let's share some of the words of the Buddha so that you can see that he indeed taught meditation. I mean, it's pretty well known that the Buddha did teach meditation, but let's just look at some of his words related to meditation so that you guys don't even have to believe me that he actually taught meditation or that he even taught the styles of meditation that I'm going to share. Here, I'm going to share some general words of the Buddha, but on the next slide, I'm going to share some very specific things that he shared to show you how it matches up directly to what I teach in terms of the meditation techniques that I teach. So here are some general words that he shared. Is he shared a pot without a stand is easy to tip over. Here, the pot is the mind. The stand is your meditation practice. So a pot, a mind without a meditation practice is easy to tip over. And that tipping over is the discontentedness. So if you find yourself getting angry or frustrated or irritated regularly, it's understandable if you haven't had 
a well-developed meditation practice. And that's the whole reason why this is part of this life practice is so that you can develop this life practice, get better and better at it so that you have a more stable stand. And the more that you practice, as you get into three months, six months, a year of meditation, this stand gets wider and wider and wider, and it becomes harder and harder to tip the pot over, that you work to eliminate certain unwholesome qualities in the mind and cultivate these wholesome qualities, that now the mind is harder and harder to tip over, that you don't get discontent very easily because you've developed and accumulated the benefits of your meditation practice over a longer and longer period of time. So keep this one in mind that a pot without a stand is easy to tip over. And your whole goal is to develop this stand, develop this meditation practice so that the pot won't be easy to tip over. Then here's a little bit longer teaching that he shared, just highlighting the importance of breathing mindfulness meditation. Here, this is titled, Mindfulness of Breathing Leads Exclusively to Enlightenment. Monks, there is one thing that when developed and cultivated, leads exclusively to liberation, to freedom from strong feelings, to elimination, to peace, to direct knowledge, to enlightenment, to nibbana. What is that one thing? Mindfulness of breathing. This is that one thing that when developed and cultivated leads exclusively to liberation, to freedom from strong feelings, to elimination, to peace, to direct knowledge, to enlightenment, to Nibbana. So here when he talks about there's this one thing that when developed and cultivated, this one thing that we develop and cultivate that leads exclusively to liberation, Whenever you see the Buddha talking about liberation, he's talking about freedom of the mind. Because when the mind is burdened with craving, desire, attachment, when it's burdened with this hatred, this anger, this ill will, this ignorance or delusion or unknowing of true reality, the mind isn't free. It's not liberated. It's polluted. So therefore, it's burdened and it's bound it doesn't experience this freedom or this liberation, this freedom from strong feelings. The unenlightened mind gets so burdened and balled down with strong feelings that it can become irate, it can become sad, it can become frustrated or feeling guilty or shameful or having fear or boredom and loneliness. This isn't a liberated mind. This is a mind that's being bogged down by these strong feelings. So he's saying there's this one thing that leads to this liberation, this freedom from strong feelings, to elimination, to elimination of discontentedness is what he's talking about, to peace, this peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy, to direct knowledge. Direct knowledge is to have experience so that you can see the truth for yourself, that in order for you to get to liberation, you have to have the experience of seeing the truth for yourself, that through learning and practicing, you get this direct knowledge or this experience, this wisdom that you acquire through the experience of practicing meditation. And then finally, he clears it up at the very end and makes sure that you know what he's talking about, which is to enlightenment, to Nibbana. What is that one thing? And he says, mindfulness of breathing, which is what I call breathing mindfulness meditation. 
So here you can see that he's referring to breathing mindfulness meditation is that one thing that leads exclusively to enlightenment. It doesn't mean that's the only thing that you need, but in terms of what the Buddha prioritized, in terms of what did he practice on a daily basis, what was the thing that we all need to be doing on a regular basis two or three times a day, it's breathing mindfulness meditation. That is a real foundation of this practice is ensuring that you develop that more and more and more and over time as you do you'll get this direct knowledge or this experience and seeing the truth for yourself that this meditation is going to improve the condition of the mind along with all the other aspects of the path to enlightenment that eightfold path there's eight steps but meditation is one of the primary things that we do as part of this path now let's look at another teaching that he shared as well along these lines. And I just am grabbing little bits and pieces of what he's sharing because in the books that I am starting to publish, I've got the full text in there. But here for these classes, I just pull out a little bit of pieces of them. Here in this particular discourse, he's already described ahead of this about how we should have wholesome friends and wholesome comrades and wholesome associates uh, essentially wholesome companions and he talks about by having wholesome friends that it's going to influence us in positive ways and he gives these five things that having wholesome friends is going to influence us and help us to progress on this path to enlightenment and then he transitions over after talking about these wholesome friends he says having based himself on these five things, meaning those five things that he just talked about related to wholesome friends, the monk should develop further another four things. And now he lists out the four things that should be developed in order to progress and attain enlightenment, along with all of his other teachings, of course. The first one is, he says, the perception of unattractiveness of the body should be developed to abandon lust because one of the things that we have in the unenlightened mind is we have this central desires where the mind is longing through the six senses and it's wanting pleasant feelings and one of the strongest central desires that we have is sexual craving so developing the unattractiveness of the body will help us to eliminate this lust or this sexual craving where the mind will no longer be longing and experiencing discontentedness when it can't get sexual contact. I'm sure that people have experienced that where you've wanted sex and you can't get it and the mind is discontent because of it. Now, a person who's interested in attaining enlightenment, you can get into this first and second stage of enlightenment while still maintaining a healthy sex life. But if you ultimately become interested in moving to the third or fourth stage of enlightenment, eventually you will decide to eliminate sexual contact, which most human beings ultimately end up doing anyway as we start to age, as we get older anyway. But as you choose when or if you choose to eliminate sexual contact, there's a way for you to train the mind to develop this unattractiveness of the body to abandon this yearning, this craving, this desire for lust or sexual contact. And we're going to talk about it today because it's one of the meditations that we actually train and one of the 
meditations that some people might need. The second meditation here that he's saying that we should develop is loving kindness should be developed to abandon ill will. That's one of those major poisons, the anger, hatred, or ill will. It's also one of the 10 fetters. So this is where the mind has hostility or aggression. When it doesn't get the objects of its affection, it experiences these painful feelings and has a tendency to push people away. So cultivating loving kindness is the antidote for that. And we've talked about that in other classes. So this is the second thing that a student would need to develop is loving kindness meditation in order to develop loving kindness in their daily life, which works to eliminate and abandon this ill will or this anger, this hatred. The third thing is develop mindfulness of breathing or breathing mindfulness meditation should be developed to cut off thoughts. This is where the teaching that I share with you guys when I'm guiding in breathing mindfulness meditation, where I teach you that if the mind goes to the past or the future, or you have thoughts or ideas or perceptions, you cut off thoughts. Now, that language oftentimes leads people to think that you're eliminating thoughts, but you're not eliminating the thoughts. Another way to say this might be to say, let go of thoughts. So that when the mind is longing for the past or it's longing for the future or it's having these thoughts or ideas or perceptions, you let them go and you bring the mind back to the breath. The language here is cut off thoughts. But what we're essentially doing is we're letting them go so that the mind can then focus on the breath and no longer the mind is yearning or having this strong eagerness for the past or the future, and it brings the mind more into the present moment. So we'll talk about this a little bit today too, but this is the third type of meditation that the Buddha taught, which is breathing mindfulness meditation or mindfulness of breathing. And then the fourth one is the perception of impermanence should be developed to eradicate the conceit, I am. When one perceives impermanence, the perception of non-self is stabilized. One who perceives non-self eradicates the conceit I am, which is Nibbana in this very life. Well, conceit is one of those fetters that need to be eliminated in order to attain enlightenment. What conceit is, is it's arrogance, it's pride, it's measuring and comparing one person to the other, kind of judging others, looking at yourself as being superior or inferior to other people. And as long as the mind does this, it's not going to experience that peacefulness and that calmness because it's projecting this arrogance and this pride and it's measuring and comparing and judging one person to the other. And you're either putting yourself above people or below people. And even putting yourself below people can be quite dangerous to the mind because the mind will be uncalm and shaken up during those periods of time. Where this comes from is it comes from our animal existences that in a herd or in a pack of animals, there's the alpha animal, for example, and then there's the rest of the pack or the tribe and the rest of the herd. And in an animal world, it makes perfect sense and it helps them to have their survival. It helps them to maintain their survival of the herd or the pack or the tribe. 
But as human beings, we inherit this and we bring it into our human existences with us and we start having this arrogance or this pride or we want this pecking order. The mind wants to know, am I above this person or am I below this person? And it needs that in order to feel somewhat content, but it's a delusion. It's ignorance. It's unknowing of true reality, realizing that this is actually causing itself problems. So it's not until the mind eradicates this conceit, it eradicates this interest in being arrogant or prideful or measuring or comparing or judging, putting yourself above and below others, that the mind can then just be peaceful because it views all beings as equal. It just sees everybody as equal. If you're talking to the president of your country, you're polite, kind, friendly, and respectful. If you're talking to a person in your neighborhood or your village, you're polite, kind, friendly, and respectful. If you're talking to somebody who some people may consider to be of a lower class or have a lower job, then you still speak to that person polite, kind, friendly, and respectful, just like you would the president of your country. So this actually helps the mind to become very peaceful because the mind doesn't have to figure out Am I talking to the president or am I talking to someone else who's below me and I should talk differently to these people? And now there's a whole different vocabulary, a whole different way of being. The mind is confused. It's uncommon. It's not quite sure how to speak to one person or the other. But when you come into these teachings of the Eightfold Path and you train the mind to be in the middle, the way that you speak to one person is exactly the same way you speak to another person. The way that you move about with your body or the way that you conduct your moral conduct or any other things that you're doing in your daily life, you just do it the same way with everybody. This is where the mind experiences that permanent peacefulness, calmness, serenity, and contentedness because it's not constantly trying to figure out who are you talking to and who do you have to respect and who are you disrespectful to? Who do you like? Who do you dislike? Who are you angry at? Who are your friends? You don't have to figure this out when the mind is enlightened because you just treat everybody the same. Polite, kind, friendly, and respectful. And you have loving kindness with everybody. So in order to eradicate this conceit, there's certain things that we do in our daily practice, but there's also a meditation technique to help us to develop the perception of impermanence and eradicate any conceit, which is what I'm going to share with you guys after this. I'm going to show you four different meditations that map in directly to these four things. But before we do that, let me just pause and see if you guys have any questions on the Buddha's words here. Looking at the prior quote from the Buddha, it seems that he's really pointing out the importance of the meditation practice. And it seems that we can learn the teachings and we can make the effort to apply the teachings to our life. But without meditation, it seems like we're not going to make the type of progress that we can make. And is it just a case of the mind has to be pure and whatever the mind is, the actions will result from that. And if we lack a pure mind, then our actions can never quite reach the level of what we're looking for in the practice. Exactly. That's why this is a whole entire path, the Eightfold Path, and each individual step of the Eightfold Path needs to be purified in those that are right intention, right speech, and right action that you're talking about here, James, is right intention 
is our thoughts or our thinking. And the Buddha gives very clear guidance there of how to purify our intentions, which we've talked about in other classes, through practicing harmlessness and practicing non-ill will and practicing letting go or relinquishment. So by practicing right intention and purifying the mind, then from that comes right speech, which he then talks about how to purify our speech through the five factors of well-spoken speech. And then he talks about how to purify our bodily actions through right action. If all of these things aren't in sync, our intentions, our speech, and our actions, then unwholesomeness is being introduced into our practice and we're going to experience unwholesome results. Because oftentimes, as we go through life before we're aware of these teachings, we can feel that we have all the best intentions in the world. And we just feel like we have all the best intentions. And we say something to somebody and then all of a sudden it just blows up in our face. And the reason why is because maybe you have the right intentions, but your speech or your actions weren't purified and in sync with your intentions. Or maybe your speech, you try to you know, speak a certain way, but underlying that, there's some intentions that are kind of harmful. And that's going to blow up as well. So it's only when we get all of these things in sync of the entire Eightfold Path and we purify each individual aspect of the path within our mind that we will experience this peaceful, calm, serene, content mind with joy because we've purified the mind and eradicated all of this pollution or the 10 fetters. And it's the Eightfold Path that kind of gives you a step-by-step of how to do that. Thank you, David. Let's go to Manal now, who has a question. Hi, teacher David. Um, so I am looking at um, uh, Gautama Buddha's um, words, and specifically the third um, mention of breathing mindfulness meditation needing to be developed to cut off thoughts at the root. Um, this particular meditation, as you also know, has been uh, one of the challenges for me to uh, actually develop a a discipline or a practice to do this a couple of times a day every day has been um, a true challenge for me um, in a personal level and I reflected on why and you know what reasons those that that challenge is is there before me and I believe that most recently I've I might have misnamed um, my lack of discipline as complacency and although some part of my practice is surely due to complacency, uh, I recently discovered that there's a, sort of a lifestyle that I've had for many years. And part of that lifestyle has been attributed to um, having right action. So if, um, if I had to peel that back a little bit um, from my upbringing in Hinduism, there's a term called karma yogi, which is basically mindfulness in action. So your your way of doing things is through creating right action, and how right action is developed is through understanding what right speech is and right intention. So uh, a lot of my previous practice has been oriented towards doing rather than you know doing doing externally rather than going internally. And I might have mislabeled a little bit of that as complacency, but uh, how do I train my mind basically 
to understand that right action will follow, but I, I still need to peel it back many layers in order to clearly put emphasis on developing the mind to cut off the thoughts and the origin of the thoughts. And I see deep value in that teaching with Gautama Buddha, and that's why I bring this up to you time and time again. Um, but I did want to you know, make note that my everyday action, even if I'm washing the dishes, even if I'm speaking to one of my students, or if I'm helping Modalon, just as an example, it's those things are done because I am cultivating, I'm trying to um, cultivate a perception of non-self basically, because I'm doing outside of me. I'm doing it because the, something else is needed before what I need to do. Now, how do I go back to discipline and train my mind for just the roots of um, my thoughts? Because that's still not coming naturally to me to form that discipline. Yeah, so be sure that you understand that right action and the Eightfold Path is just all about not causing harm through the bodily actions. That's a way to really boil it down and simplify it, that we don't cause harm through the movements of our body, right? So we don't punch we don't hit, we don't kill, we don't steal, we don't have sexual misconduct, we don't take intoxicants, we don't gamble. All these things would produce unwholesome results for us. So we use our body for what we need to take care of the body, to take care of the daily activities that we have, but we ensure that we're not harming through our body. But the meditation part of it is part of that upper part of the full path, which is right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration, but specifically right concentration. This path, while people learn this path and they learn it very well, and you guys are getting soaked into the path more and more, especially you, Manal, since you've been in this program a couple of times now, but even the people who've just started in the last few months, you guys should be starting to understand this Eightfold Path really, really well. You're seeing it, you're practicing it, but there's still things that are happening in your life that you would prefer not to happen. It might be the way you're speaking, it might be that there's still unwholesome thoughts that are arising, there might still be some other harmful things that you're doing. That's just because you haven't been practicing it long enough. So if you're experiencing Manal, even though you say you might have miscategorized it as complacency or you're just not seeing the progress that the mind wants to see in your meditation, it's just because you haven't been doing it long enough. So there's this path, there's the eight steps, there's understanding it really, really well, soaking it into the mind really well, and then just getting more and more proficient at doing that more and more easily over and over and over again in your daily life. And in doing so, if you're still noticing that there's challenges, it's just because you haven't been doing it long enough and you just need to keep doing it more and more. That, you know, the Buddha himself took six years to attain enlightenment. So I tell people it's going to take you a little while, right? It's going to take a few years to get to enlightenment. And you just got to be patient and just know that, okay, as long as I'm learning this Eightfold Path, I'm investigating it, I'm taking the effort to and energy to learn it, to reflect on it, to apply it. And wherever I see that my life practice isn't the Eightfold Path, then I'm going to aim to improve that. And I'm going to work to improve that. And where you see these little glimpses of 
where things aren't where you would like them to be, then just take note of that and then just aim to do better in future situations that are similar. Because one of the challenging things I think for a lot of people is once you learn this path intellectually and you know it pretty well, and then seeing that your practice isn't there yet, oftentimes the mind can feel guilty, it can feel shameful. You can even be looking back to the past once you learn the Buddhist teachings really well and you look back to the past and you're like, oh my goodness, I've been treating people horrible my whole life. Well, that's why it's important to not long for the past and not keep the mind in the past and bringing it to the present moment. Because if you dwell on things that happened in the past, and not just five or 10 years ago, but even two or three hours ago, if you dwell on those things that you weren't practicing the Eightfold Path, then the mind's going to experience discontentedness. You just have to see it for what it is, which is, okay, I didn't have the wisdom, I didn't have the moral conduct, and I didn't have the mental discipline that I needed at that time, whether it was five years ago, 10 years ago, or you know, 20 minutes ago. I didn't have what I needed at that point in time to practice perfectly. But my goal is now that I'm aware of that and I see that, my goal is now in the present moment to not beat myself up about that, not to feel guilty and shameful about that, but just to aim to improve so that in the next situation, I can improve and get better and better and better and kind of slowly chip away at this. One way that I think about moving to the enlightened mind is like making a wooden sculpture. When you first get on this path, it's like you have a big hunk of log in front of you. And when you first start learning, it's like you're chucking off these big pieces of wood because you're seeing that this sculpture isn't the way that you would like it to look. And you're chucking off these big pieces of wood and you're using different tools to chuck off these pieces of wood. And as you get further and further in your practice, you're refining it more and more and more. But don't feel bad about times that you weren't practicing the Eightfold Path, even if it was 20 minutes ago. But just look at that, reflect on that, know that it needs to get better, and then just aim to do better. Keep meditating, keep doing all the things that are part of the Eightfold Path, because that's what's going to support you to continue your learning, your reflection, and your practice. There's no magic pill. There's no way to snap your fingers and just instantly do any of this stuff. It's a matter of learning it really, really well, seeing the areas where you're not practicing the Eightfold Path to perfection, and then just working to improve that each day. I thank you for the clarity on right action, uh, number one, and also... um, It does make a lot of sense to me to cultivate just the just continue to form a habit of sitting to do breathing mindfulness meditation that just needs to literally be like an alarm clock where I'm reminding myself to now it's time to sit because if I don't have something as clear as that before me right now I'm probably going to do you know jump to something else which is action oriented or which is you know fulfilling another goal Um, so this just the stillness and um, having the discipline to uh, approach the practice of breathing mindfulness meditation without having a hesitation, because right now there's a big gap of hesitation that's there before I even sit down. 
So at some point I would like to work on easing myself into the breathing mindfulness meditation because once I'm there, I see that that's helping. Mm -hmm. And once I'm finished with it, I see the benefit of how that has helped. Yeah, one of the things that we have going for us here in the human existence is that we experience discontentedness, all three feelings, painful, pleasant, neither painful nor pleasant. And one of the things that I always did is use this as motivation to encourage me to practice. So when I saw that the mind was sad or frustrated or irritated or feeling guilty or shameful or fears or boredom or loneliness, I was like, man, I, I do not like this feeling whatsoever. I'm interested in getting away from this. So that's what motivated me to continue to learn and continue to practice and get into those meditation sessions because I didn't like that ickiness feeling. And I knew that the only exit, the only escape, the only door out of this is the Buddhist path as far as what I knew. So when you're feeling guilty or you're feeling shameful or you're feeling sad or you're feeling angry or frustrated or bored or lonely, just look at that and be like, man, I just do not like this whatsoever. And use that as motivation to encourage you to get into your meditation practice. Thank you. Mm -hmm. And then the other thing, too, in terms of motivation, Manal, is seeing how you have these successes where maybe there's been certain relationships in the past that were a little bit rough or rugged. And then as you start meditating more and the mind becomes more calm and peaceful and you start practicing those five factors of well-spoken speech and you see the relationships improving and you see your ability to get things done really improve because you're having more and more wholesome results with right speech, then that can be a motivating factor and be like, oh, wow, look at this. This is just working so well. Let me do more of this and kind of have that self-motivation, even though there is no self, but having that inner interest to continue to pursue. Uh, next is Teacher David. The first bullet point on this slide. What were the five things based on at the top again? There are five things that the Buddha is talking about there that you can find if you look into the book, Developing a Life Practice, The Path That Leads to Enlightenment. I have all of them there in chapter 11. It's talking about the wholesome friends and companions and comrades. And the Buddha goes through giving very specific details of having wholesome friends, what does that lead to? So you can see it for yourself in there. Yes, uh, Holly has a question, says, teacher, do you think that reviewing the steps on the Eightfold Path just before meditation would be helpful addition to practice? Sure, anytime you're reviewing the Eightfold Path and soaking that in, really, really helpful. There's just no way to possibly learn the Eiffel Path too much. There's no such thing as that. I mean, I used to just really soak that into my mind. You know, if I was sitting somewhere waiting for the DMV or waiting in line for something, I would oftentimes be studying the Eiffel Path over and over and over and over again because that is the path to enlightenment. And that's why when I teach, I can just rattle it off so easily, not just the individual steps, but all the detail of each individual step is just so ingrained in the mind. The more ingrained you have it in the mind, the more you're going to be able to practice it. 
but then also when you're not practicing it, you're going to be able to see it more clearly and know what the remedy is. So if you study the Buddhist teachings before meditation and then you meditate, you can do it that way. Or some people like to meditate first and then read the Buddhist teachings, you know, 10, 15 minutes afterwards. That's what I did is as I was learning the Buddhist teachings from these books, I would meditate either first and then read for 10, 15, 20 minutes, or I would read them and then meditate afterwards and really helping to soak the knowledge into the mind. Because then once you've got that intellectual learning, then you go out into the world and you practice it. And I would never move on to the next thing until I felt like I had proven or disproven what the Buddha was teaching was true. So as I was going through all of these books, if I had the intention to sit down and read 20 chapters, but three chapters in, I was like, hold on a second. That doesn't look right. I need to practice that. I would stop there and I might stop there for two, three, four days before I would move on to the next part of the book. So when you're reading the book, Developing a Life Practice, The Path That Leads to Enlightenment, you can sit and you can reflect and you can look at what I'm sharing and see for yourself based on your past experiences, whether or not that's true or not. And if it's true, then you know it's true and you've got that wisdom and confirmation. But if you're not sure if that's true or not, don't even move to the next paragraph. Just spend the next several hours or next several days to determine whether that's actually true or not before you move on. So even though we have this schedule of a chapter per week, I think a really wise practitioner wouldn't really progress until they're seeing the truth in each individual component of the teaching. And a lot of times you can do that through reflection of your own life, where like if you've stolen in the past and you get to the point where it's talking about not stealing and you know that it led to unwholesome results in the mind where maybe you were feeling nervous and frustrated or irritated or scared or fearful or maybe you got in some kind of trouble then that's pretty easy to look on and say yeah that's for sure going to help eliminate discontentedness in the mind and unwholesome results if i stop stealing if i don't steal but some of these other teachings you might not be able to just reflect but you know spend that time reflecting either before meditation or after meditation on the teachings and then putting them into practice so that you can see their truth and then you've got the wisdom of the path and it's just so soaked into the mind that you can just know it with ease okay uh, thanks uh, no more questions for now okay so let's go on to mapping the four meditations that the Buddha is prescribing here and sharing that are part of the path to enlightenment to the four meditations that you're going to see in chapter 11 that I taught. The first one, of course, that I teach in chapter 11 and I also teach on Wednesdays in this same program is breathing mindfulness meditation. This is the primary meditation. This is the one that the Buddha prioritizes over all other meditations because the primary problem in the mind is craving, desire, attachment. That's what's causing the discontentedness. Of course, ignorance or unknowing of true reality is the primary problem that's leading to all the other problems. But once we get past that, the primary problem that's causing discontentedness is craving, desire, attachment. So breathing mindfulness meditation is working to eliminate craving, desire, attachment, because as the mind longs, 
as it has this strong eagerness for the past or the future or thoughts or ideas or perceptions, you're cutting that off. You're letting that go. You're bringing the mind back to the breath and training the mind to no longer long. And you're gaining more and more control over multiple sessions. You're improving your mental discipline that you gain more and more control over this mind so that the thoughts and the ideas and the perceptions aren't controlling you anymore, but you're actually controlling the mind by bringing it back and bringing it back and bringing it back. And then that becomes beneficial because in daily life, when certain things are happening and you're noticing anger arise or you're noticing frustration arise or boredom or loneliness or guilt or shame, if you've trained in meditation to cut off and come back to the breath, then when you notice these feelings starting to arise, you can cut it off and let it go. And then the more and more that you get good at this, by cutting it back farther and farther and farther, eventually these feelings won't ever arise anymore. You won't have anger arise or frustration or guilt or shame or fear or boredom or loneliness because you've gotten really good at cutting back, cutting back and cutting back. So in this meditation, what you're eliminating is craving, desire, attachment. And what you're cultivating is mindfulness or awareness of mind. You're cultivating this awareness of mind that when you're in meditation and you're focused on the breath, as you're focused on the breath, the mind becomes aware at some point that it's not on the breath. Whether that's 30 seconds or three minutes or 10 minutes, at some point the mind kicks in. The awareness of mind kicks in and now you're cultivating awareness of mind better and better and you're getting better and better at noticing that the mind is not on the breath. And then when you have that, you cut it off and let it go. So you're eliminating the craving, desire, attachment, but you're cultivating this awareness of mind. And then once again, that becomes beneficial in daily life that you become aware of the anger as it's starting to arise, as bodily sensations, as feelings in the mind. You start becoming aware of that and you can cut it off sooner and sooner. Or you become aware of the boredom or the loneliness starting to come in and you cut that off because the mind becomes more aware of it. Because once it gets into the mind and it starts polluting the mind, it's a lot harder to let go of these feelings. So if you can catch it sooner and sooner through continuous training in breathing mindfulness meditation, by developing your awareness of mind or mindfulness, you can catch it sooner and sooner in your daily life and you can cut it off sooner and sooner so it doesn't pollute the mind and it doesn't affect the mind as significantly as it did before you were on this path. So those are the two primary things that you're cultivating, but you're also developing this singleness of mind or right concentration is what it's called on the Eightfold Path. In this meditation, you're actually developing right effort, right mindfulness and right concentration. We call breathing mindfulness meditation, we call it right concentration because you're developing singleness of mind, being able to focus just on the breath. But you're taking the right effort during meditation to eliminate unwholesome qualities and arise wholesome qualities. And you're also developing right mindfulness or awareness of mind, right? So that whole section of the Eightfold Path that is mental discipline, 
right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration is being cultivated during meditation. But here with breathing mindfulness meditation, you're specifically eliminating craving, desire, attachment, cultivating awareness of mind, and training the mind to focus like a laser just on the breath, the singleness of mind. And when people first start meditating, they typically feel somewhat bored, right? Because the mind is used to longing. It's used to having this excitement and this pleasure and this elation. It's not used to just sitting in one spot and focusing on the breath. And that's the whole problem. That's the major problem of the mind is that it wants to long for these pleasant feelings. It wants this excitement. It wants this pleasure. It wants this elation. And what you're training the mind to do in breathing mindfulness meditation is you're going to be content. You're going to be peaceful. Hey, Mr. Mind or Mrs. Mind, you need to sit here and just focus on the breath and find a way to be peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy just focused on the breath and only the breath. You don't need anything else, just the breath. And developing this singleness of mind, bringing the mind into the present moment and eradicating the mind's longing for these pleasant feelings, this is where the mind gets more and more used to residing in the present moment with singleness of mind and being peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy through this breathing mindfulness meditation. And then in daily life, you apply this training that you've done in meditation so that as feelings arise, either painful, pleasant, or neither painful nor pleasant, if you've done a lot of training, then it'll get easier and easier for you to be aware of those feelings when they arise and then cut them off so that they don't disturb the mind and that the mind doesn't become discontent. And as you cut that back more and more, then you're going to notice that eventually those feelings don't ever arise because you've eradicated all craving, desire, attachment in the mind, and it no longer even feels the slightest annoyance arise or the slightest little bit of loneliness or boredom or even the slightest bit of guilt or shame. And it's through this training of breathing mindfulness meditation. That's the primary one that the Buddha prescribes. And that's why you should be doing this two or three times a day as part of your practice. And if you start with five minutes, okay, great, you're at five minutes or even one minute, right? And that's what you start with and that's fine. But work to elongate that more and more and more, okay? Then the next one is loving kindness meditation. Because remember, he said, develop loving kindness to abandon ill will, which is essentially anger, hatred, ill will. And there's lighter versions of that too. Like even when someone gets annoyed, you know, you've kind of got a little bit of ill will or hostility there, right? So what the loving kindness meditation is doing is training the mind to eliminate anger, hatred, ill will, and all those lesser versions while cultivating loving kindness or active goodwill, a genuine interest in seeing all beings be well. And once again, when you're doing this in meditation, then you bring that with you in daily life and you're not going to be perfect, right? The first couple of weeks, the first couple of months, right? You're not going to be perfect because you're developing your practice and getting better and better at it in your training sessions, but then getting better and better at it in daily life too. So you're still going to experience anger, even though you know you've got to eradicate it. And that's something that you're working on. You're not there yet. You've still got to soak the mind 
into this loving kindness meditation over consistent sessions so that then in daily life, the mind will practice loving kindness with all people. Then there's these other two meditations that are more specialized meditations. The first two, every practitioner is going to need because the first meditation of breathing mindfulness meditation addresses that first poison of craving. The second meditation addresses that second poison of anger or hatred or ill will. So those are needed by all practitioners. These other two meditations are specialized and only used in specialized situations. If somebody has a lot of sexual partners and they know having three, four, five, six partners at one time is going to cause unwholesome results and they're trying to bring their sexual craving down, they might use this next meditation to eliminate sexual cravings. Or if somebody has had a partner in the past and now they don't have a partner at all and they're starting to have discontentedness around sexual cravings, then they could use this meditation to knock down their sexual craving. Or if you're in that second stage of enlightenment and you thin your sexual craving and now you're looking to eradicate it entirely, in order to get to the third or fourth stage of enlightenment, you might use this particular meditation to eradicate or eliminate sexual cravings or sensual desire and to cultivate unattractiveness of the body. This is going to help you. And I'm going to explain to you and show you what that meditation is because I've already shown you on our Wednesdays what breathing mindfulness meditation and loving kindness meditation is. So today I'm not going to show you those two because you should already know what those are. Or you can go back if this is your first time joining us. You can go back and see what I taught for those. And I'm also going to be teaching those in this Wednesday and subsequent Wednesdays. But today I'm going to show you guys this particular meditation. I describe it in this chapter, but I'm going to actually show it to you today. And then there's this other meditation that we teach as well to eradicate the self or eliminate the self, that conceit I am that the Buddha talked about. So we call it the meditation to realize non-self. And this is to eliminate the self because the mind falsely attributes this physical body or this mind as being the self. And as long as it does that, it's going to experience discontentedness. It's not until it eliminates the self and cultivates the perception of impermanence, eradicating the conceit I am to realize non-self, that the mind will then move into a more peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. And these are the four meditations that are used. And the first two, like I mentioned, are for everybody. These other two are used in specialized situations, and you're usually working closely with a teacher. But I'm going to show you what these other two are today since we haven't covered them in other classes. But let me pause here and see if you guys have any questions on this before I move into talking about the specialized meditations of eliminating sexual cravings and eliminating and realizing non-self. We have a question from Mika. I have noticed that a bit of anger has been eliminated. And also, I have a bit of loving kindness, but I have only been practicing breathing mindfulness meditation only. Is that possible or am I imagining? Yes, because breathing mindfulness meditation is going to knock down the craving desire attachment 
where the mind's longing for something. And if it gets the objects of its affection, the mind's going to experience pleasant feelings, happiness, excitement, and elation. But if it doesn't get what it wants, then it's going to experience anger, hatred, ill will, hostility, aggression. So by you knocking down craving, desire, attachment with breathing mindfulness meditation, there's going to be less of that in the mind. So therefore, there's going to be a little bit less of the anger, hatred, and ill will. But to really transform that entirely, you need the loving kindness meditation. You wouldn't be able to only practice breathing mindfulness meditation to eradicate the anger, hatred, and ill will. Well, we have a question from Samira. She says, Mr. David, the other two meditation techniques are used in specialized situations, but aren't they also essential to attain enlightenment? It all depends because some people can eradicate sexual cravings without a meditation. They don't actually need a meditation to actually do it. That it's possible to eliminate sexual craving without doing the meditation to actually do it. There's the ability to eradicate the self without actually using the meditation to do it. So these are two that are specialized that can help you to do this, but it's not going to be required of everyone to use it. So I have it in the book because certain people are going to need it and I teach it because certain people are going to need it, but not everyone's going to need these. But everyone is going to need to eliminate sexual cravings if they're going to attain enlightenment at the fourth stage of enlightenment. And everybody is going to need to realize non-self in order to even get to the first stage of enlightenment and eradicate conceit to get to the fourth stage. But how they do that may or may not include these particular meditations depending on each individual. Well, it seems that uh, this is all the questions for now. Okay, so I'm going to change the slide, but I just want to give people a heads up that the slide that I'm changing to has a dissected corpse. So if you're someone who tends to be shocked by graphic images, there's a graphic image that I'm switching to now. So just give you a heads up on that because this next image is how we develop the perception of unattractiveness of the body. And one of the ways that we do this in meditation is by looking at this particular image or any image like it. I just got this one off of the internet. What we do in this meditation to eliminate sexual cravings is to see the body as it truly is. The reason why we have sexual cravings is because we have this ignorance or this unknowing of true reality, this delusion about the human body we tend to view in the unenlightened state the human body as being attractive and we're physically attracted to it because we see certain hair, we see makeup, we see jewelry, we smell a certain scent that's been artificially put onto the body, we see clothing, we see certain shapes of the physical body that excite the mind. And that's because the mind doesn't see the body as it truly is. And what we do in order to develop this unattractiveness of the body and help the mind see it as it truly is, is we look at dissected corpse or even a real corpse. Like here in Thailand, you can go to temples when people have died and they will have the corpse laying out. And people can meditate just looking at the corpse. And oftentimes when you're doing this in person, there's a certain smell also that's helping the mind to see the unattractiveness of the body. 
Because when we see the beautiful hair and the makeup and the jewelry and the clothing and all this beautiful scents that we put on the body, we don't see the pus in the urine, in the defecation, in the saliva, in all the other fluids and all the other bones. If we actually ripped off the skin and said, okay, is this what you would like to have sex with? Somebody probably would be like, no, 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 no. I'm not interested in having sex with that. But when you put the skin on, all of a sudden, the mind is interested in having sex. So the way that you train the mind to develop the unattractiveness of the body is you get pictures like this and you sit or stand or lie, whatever meditation position you'd like to take, and you stare at this picture, focusing on the picture. And then you slowly develop this true perception, this true awareness of what the body actually looks like. Or in some cases here in Thailand, people will go to the temple and observe a body before it's being burned and they actually have the smell sometimes as well as it's being burned or as it's laying there. And that smell can help to develop the unattractiveness of the body. So for some people, this may seem a bit extreme if you've never been exposed to this, but this is sometimes the extreme that you have to go to to kind of jolt the mind into seeing things as true reality. And you may not be ready to do this right now, depending on your age, depending on your relationship of where you are in your relationship. You may not be interested in eliminating sexual cravings. Maybe you've got one partner. Maybe you guys are going to have kids before too long. Or maybe you don't have a partner, but someday you're planning to have a partner and have children. This isn't a meditation that you would necessarily start working on right now. But if you've got multiple partners and you're trying to bring that down to one, this would be a meditation that would help you to do that. It's not like you're going to do it once or twice or three times and all your sexual craving is going to be gone. It's a slow, gradual degrading of your sexual craving. So don't be concerned or worried that if you just do it a few times, it's going to immediately eliminate your sexual craving because that's not how it works. It's gradual training and gradual practice that there's gradual results. So if you've got you know multiple partners and you're trying to bring that down to one, this is the way to do that. Or if you've had partners in the past and you've been struggling while you're not in a relationship and you're feeling a lot of discontentedness around sexual cravings, this would be a meditation for you to do. Or if you're working your way into the jhanas and the first and second stage of enlightenment and you would like to knock down your sexual craving and completely eliminate it, this would be a meditation for you to do. So let me see if you guys have any questions on this before I move to the next one. We have no questions specifically on the topic of this meditation, David. Okay, so you guys can get any picture that you like. Here in Thailand, if you go into some of the Buddhist stores, they actually sell these laminated for people. Uh, but you can actually download them off the internet as well and get whatever picture looks the most gruesome and shows the most difficult thing for you to look at that's going to be the most challenge for your mind and that's what's going to help your mind to develop this unattractiveness, right? So there's all kinds of pictures out there that you can use for this when you decide or if you decide this is something that you need. And as you need guidance and you need support and help on this, you can reach out to me and I will help you with this. The next one is to develop meditation to realize non-self. 
if you remember back to the classes that I taught non-self, what the problem in the unenlightened mind is, is that it's falsely attributing the physical body or the mind as being the self. Because of the self-image or the self-identity that is held in the unenlightened mind, there's this permanent self that the mind thinks that exists. It's holding on to this physical body or this mind so that when somebody says something negative or disagreeable about your physical appearance or your image, the mind gets disgruntled and irritated and frustrated about that because somebody said something disparaging about the physical body. And that's why the mind is discontent because it's holding on to this self. It falsely thinks that this physical body is the self or is you. And as long as you hold on to that self-image, you're going to want to protect it and you're going to feel offended when anybody says something negative or disparaging about you. And because there is no permanence, you're never going to live in a world where nobody ever says anything disparaging about you. You're going to be in situations where you're walking down the street or you're in mixed company and somebody's going to say something or somebody looks at you in a certain way. And if you hold on to thinking this physical body is you or is the self, as long as you hold on to that, then the mind's going to feel and experience discontentedness in those situations. And likewise, when somebody says something pleasing or agreeable about your physical appearance, you're going to feel excitement. You're going to feel elated. You're going to feel happiness because they said, oh, your hair looks nice or uh, I really like that shirt that you're wearing. You're going to feel a little bit of happiness and excitement because the mind is basing its inner feelings on this agreeable speech about the physical body and about the image that you are now holding in the mind. So as long as the mind is experiencing pleasant feelings based on agreeable speech, based on the physical appearance of the body, and as long as it's experiencing disagreeable speech and painful feelings about the physical body and the image, then it's going to keep experiencing discontentedness over and over. And likewise, this self-identity, there's a certain self-identity in the mind where you might identify with I am a doctor or I am a teacher or I am a hard worker or I am a kind person. So when somebody says something about doctors or teachers or somebody says something disagreeable and says, you're lazy, you're so lazy, you're going to fight and you're going to be protective and that anger is going to come out. Or if somebody compliments you in a very nice and polite way, then the mind's going to become prideful and maybe even arrogant because there's this conceit, I am, associating the identity or the self-identity in the mind as being who you are, that I am this body or I am this mind. And as long as the mind holds on to this, it's going to keep experiencing these painful feelings and these pleasant feelings and these feelings that are neither painful nor pleasant. It's only when you eradicate the self that the mind is going to then reside peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy, along with eradicating all these other fetters. So you need to first learn the Eightfold Path 
and put together all those teachings on the Eightfold Path, which includes breathing mindfulness meditation, loving kindness meditation, and all the other aspects of the path that we've talked about. And then as the mind progresses over multiple months and maybe even a few years, then you start experiencing the jhanas. The mind starts moving through these preliminary phases where it experiences what we call the jhanas, which we've talked about in other classes. And as you start to experience that, that's the time to start focusing on eradicating the self from the mind. Because the mind is not ready to let go of the self when you first get on this path. You wouldn't be able to just start doing this meditation to eradicate the self because the mind hasn't been softened up with all these other tools and techniques to be able to let go of the self. So once the mind has been developed and there's this life practice of the Eightfold Path, all these different factors from right view all the way to right concentration, and the mind's meditating consistently with breathing mindfulness meditation and loving kindness meditation, the mind starts experiencing these jhanas and now it's time to really start working to eradicate the self. And if you're experiencing the jhanas, you will be working with a teacher pretty closely by that point. Somebody wouldn't really be able to start experiencing the jhanas in the first stage of enlightenment without working with a teacher very closely. So once you start experiencing this and you're putting together all these teachings and the mind's kind of softened up and you're starting to look at eradicating the self, what I would do is I would have several talks with you privately about what the self is and how you view the self and helping to make sure you really deeply understand what non-self is and the problem in the unenlightened mind of holding on to a self. And then I would help you with this meditation as well as some other things that you're going to need to do in daily life in order to eradicate the self. And this is just one meditation amongst the others that we've talked about that are used on a case-by-case specialized basis in order to actively train the mind to eliminate the perception of a self, to eliminate the conceit I am, and no longer falsely associate this body and this mind as being the self. And when you use this meditation along with other things that I would teach you in your daily life, slowly but surely, this self gets peeled away more and more and more and more to the point where you eventually do what we call realize non-self, where the mind fully understands that there is no self. And not only does it understand it on an intellectual level, but you're actually practicing in a way that the mind no longer is holding on to a self. Because somebody can understand intellectually that there is no self that you could say like, yeah, there's no self. But then if somebody talks negatively about you, then your mind becomes discontent because of the self-image that's there that's being held in the mind. So even though someone might understand the universal truth of non-self intellectually, when you look at their life practice, they might actually still have a self in the mind and they're still being affected by the mind. So this is an important thing because I see this often where people will understand intellectually what non-self is, but still in the mind, they will hold on to a self, not realizing that the self is still there because the unenlightened mind doesn't understand what it doesn't understand. 
the ego is there trying to tell you that you're more enlightened than you really are. And when the mind understands intellectually that there is no self, then the ego takes that jump, takes that leap, and it thinks that the self is eradicated just because the mind understands it intellectually. But you need to take this intellectual learning and you need to soak it in deeper and deeper and deeper into the mind to eradicate any kind of false identification with this physical body or the mind as being the self. And it's this meditation along with some other practices that will allow you to accomplish that. So let me see what questions you guys have on this. Holly has a question. It says, how would one balance complimenting people and not building the self, specifically with children? I like to compliment my children when they do good things to encourage good behavior. But isn't that also encouraging a view of self in them and making it difficult for them to realize non-self? There's two different sides to this. There's we function the way that we function and there's nothing wrong whatsoever in complimenting somebody and telling somebody they did a good job or wow, you look so beautiful today or wow, your complexion looks much more younger than you did last time or your hair looks beautiful or I love your sweater. There's nothing wrong with saying these kind of things to people or to children. But what has to come with that, particularly with your children, is you have to then train them not to have arrogance or pride or to absorb that in a way that becomes boastful or prideful. So we can't stop people from saying, oh, wow, you look beautiful, or oh, wow, I like your eyes, or oh, wow, your teeth are so white. So those things are going to happen in our life, and we can feel the freedom to say those things to our children, that they've done something well, or we really like how they talk to their dad or their mom, or their, we really like how they interact with their friends. We can tell them these compliments because that's what helps them to see that they're on the right path and progressing in the right direction. But at the same time, we have to give them guidance to not allow that to produce arrogance or pride in the mind. And that's where they find the middle, where they can hear these things that are pleasing and agreeable to the mind, but the mind's not affected by it. Or the mind can hear these negative and disparaging things from certain people in the world, but their mind's not affected by it. And that's where the middle is. So we can do these things with our children, but we have to make sure that we bring the other guidance and the other training along with it so that they don't become arrogant or prideful based on the things that are being shared with them. We have a couple of questions about the first two kinds of meditation. Nick says, Teacher David, should we do both breathing mindful meditation and loving kindness meditation every day? or just when loving kindness meditation is felt to be needed. And he continues saying, for example, I haven't felt annoyance lately, so I have just been focusing on breathing mindfulness meditation. I used loving kindness meditation a lot a few months ago. Yeah, so each person's a little bit different, Nick. Depends on where they are in their practice. You know, somebody who's just starting out, my advice would be breathing mindfulness meditation and loving kindness meditation but building up kind of like four weeks or six weeks of breathing mindfulness meditation first, that's where I always start people out first, is just do breathing mindfulness meditation to develop your practice for a good four solid weeks and maybe longer for some people. 
and then slowly bring in loving kindness meditation. With the two to three meditation sessions a day, have at least one of them breathing mindfulness meditation, and then the other two either breathing mindfulness or loving kindness and kind of uh, rotating those. Because as you know, with loving kindness meditation, we also do a little bit of breathing mindfulness meditation. So if someone's only gonna do two sessions a day, one should be breathing mindfulness and one should be loving kindness. And then if there's a third, kind of make that an optional. But kind of building that up slowly within kind of four weeks and then beyond adding in loving kindness meditation. But if someone's been doing breathing mindfulness meditation and loving kindness meditation for a consistent period of time and they're not seeing any kind of hatred or any kind of annoyance or aggression or any hostility or even just people just we use the word like just irking you like if someone's just irking you you still have some of that poison in there right but if somebody's gone a good six months without feeling any of those feelings then i would say you can back off the loving kindness meditation and just go to breathing mindfulness meditation but you've got to feel that for yourself and kind of know when the right time to bring it in and out. You know, I would need to talk with each person individually to give you real specific guidance of, you know, when to back off the loving kindness meditation. But the thing is, is that doing loving kindness meditation isn't going to hurt you. It's surely not going to hurt you. So there's no harm in doing a loving kindness meditation. And anytime you see any kind of, you feel like this person's irking you, you know it's you yourself that's causing it. You've got to maintain that loving kindness meditation. Get a good six months or so of not having any kind of irritation whatsoever. And then if you would like to back off the loving kindness, then sure. And then you know how to do it so that if you notice any kind of anger, hatred, or ill will starting to arise, you can always bring it back into your practice. A question from Sanara. She says, Mr. David, there are other meditation techniques like Vipassana meditation and Samatha meditation, for instance. Is breathing mindfulness meditation and loving kindness meditation alone enough to attain enlightenment? Yes. Breathing mindfulness meditation and loving kindness meditation is all somebody would need in order to attain enlightenment. There's tons and tons of other meditations out there that people use for different reasons, but they wouldn't necessarily have to use those. The Buddha only taught very specific meditations. And by narrowing down what you're actually needing to learn and practice, then you can get a lot deeper into your practice. Where if somebody was attempting to learn, you know, 10, 20, 30 different meditations, they're practice is going to be really broad and very wide and they're not going to be able to be as deep with their meditation. Remember the primary problems that the Buddha discovered, which is craving, anger, and ignorance. These are the three high-level problems that the Buddha discovered. And in those particular poisons or those particular problems, there's specific antidotes. And that's why you would only need these meditations because Breathing mindfulness meditation addresses the craving, that first primary poison. It addresses that. Now, there's some other practices that need to be employed in order to eliminate craving. But in terms of meditation, that meditation is what eliminates craving, desire, attachment. That second poison of anger, hatred, or ill will, the meditation to antidote that is loving kindness meditation. 
Now, there's some other practices there that need to be employed in order to eliminate that poison from the mind. But in terms of meditation, that's the only one. And then for that third poison or that third primary problem that the Buddha discovered, which is ignorance or unknowing of true reality, there is no meditation for that. That is to antidote that is wisdom and training in the Buddhist teachings to see the truth. So once you understand the three primary problems that the Buddha discovered, then you realize that all of his teachings on meditation map into these three. And that's why you don't have to go out and learn 10 or 20 or 30 different meditations. You can just refine your practice into just these, get really, really, really good at them, really deep in them, get a whole lot of results out of them so that you're fully addressing the problems that the Buddha discovered. Thanks, Arun. Uh, the last question for now is from Anne, so let's go to here. Yes, Teacher David, if meditation to real, realize non-self involves eliminating, number one, eliminating the self, and number two, cultivating um, impermanence through eradication of conceit, then how does the mind work around uh, a space of creative expression. So uh, there's a, many times um, people have used creative expression uh, through as a, a channel to um, express not only themselves but past experiences. It could be very therapeutic. Uh, it could just bring a lot of joy for someone. So I, I'm having it, um, a challenging time um, finding the middle between having a, a creative outlet, so to speak, and uh, many times I'm unable to verbalize my thoughts, and so my mode is, is you know, writing, creative writing could be one of the ways in which I can actually tap into what what are my deepest thoughts. I mean, it's, it's part of something that I do just for myself. Um, there's also just artwork or painting or things things of that nature. So how does how would you how does the mind sort of address that space where there is a, a you know the creative expression um, component without attaching? I mean, with recognizing without attaching an ego. But that that channel is still before you. How do you how do you um, work around these things? Okay, so when you're eradicating the mind's false identification of there being a permanent self, you're not eradicating creativity. You're not eradicating creative expression. You're not eradicating the personality, right? There's a certain personality that's there. You're not eradicating any of that stuff. What you're eradicating is that pollution of personal existence view, that first fetter that's on the list of the fetters. That personal existence view is how the mind falsely identifies this physical body or the mind as being the self, right? So the mind, as we know, has these different layers to it. And the personality and creative expression or creative artwork and all these kind of things those are all in there. But what's inhibiting the mind from experiencing peacefulness is this pollution of this personal existence view where the mind is holding on to this physical body or this mind 
thinking that this is the self. So when the mind becomes angry, the person thinks that they are angry, so therefore they feel guilty or shameful rather than disassociating with the feelings of anger and realizing that's not who you are. That's just one example. Or the body gets hungry and now the body's hungry and now you say, I am hungry, I need food and now I start to get grumpy. Well, if the mind starts to realize non-self and it realizes that I am not this body, then when the body gets hungry, it's just the body getting hungry. I am not hungry, it's just the body is hungry. So when you eradicate this I am, this conceit of I am, then you no longer hold on to this hunger pain and you no longer see it as if I'm grumpy, this is going to be beneficial for me. Instead, the mind gains control because you have discipline and you no longer associate the hunger that's in the stomach with who you are and that, oh my goodness, I'm going to die if I don't get food, then the mind can disassociate with this pain. It recognizes that it's impermanent and let me just go get some food in the next 20 or 30 minutes and I can take care of this hunger pain and not associate the feelings of hunger through the body as being who I am and then acting upon that. So you're eradicating this pollution of how the mind latches on to certain bodily image or certain bodily sensations or anything that's going on in the body and the mind latching onto that and then acting out because of it. Or the mind experiencing certain feelings like anger or frustration or irritation or I am beautiful or I am a hard worker or I am this and now taking ownership over that and then when you hear something disagreeable, then the mind can't be peaceful because it hears something opposite of what the mind thinks it is. If the mind's holding on to, I am beautiful, if you don't hear that from somebody, then the mind's going to experience painful feelings. So by letting all of that go, this I am, and stop associating the body and the mind as being who you are, then the creative expression and all those other things that you mentioned are still there, but they're being polluted by this personal existence view. And by getting that out of the way, I would say the creative expression and all these other things will actually come through more brightly and shine more brightly because it's not polluted with this arrogance or this pride or this self-image or self-identity of thinking that I am this body or I am this mind or I am these feelings or... I am whatever's happening to me right now. I am this. The mind can disassociate with that. So the creative expression and all that stuff will come through actually a lot more profoundly because it won't be polluted by all this other stuff that's in the way. Right. So yeah, in anything that um, that I would work on creative creatively, uh, I think that my practice has been to make sure there's diligence and sort of fine-tooth combing out um, a sense of self in that but I, I do see that there's still a residual um, you know something that's coming that I'm receiving and and it's not just the, the factor of just joy maybe it's something else you know so 
someone someone else might say something about it or what have you because I eventually um, put that art out there or put it in my home or do something where it inevitably gets um, recognized other than just myself and my family. So for me, um, this personal existence view um, and recognizing that that's something that I need to understand fully when I am creatively expressing myself uh, would be uh, an extra layer of sort of um, making, you know, having more mindfulness to that. And I feel like I need to still work on that. Yeah, so let's use the example of an artist. It's a perfect example. Let's say there's an artist that has a self and they become very prideful or very arrogant when they're doing their artwork and they just think they're the best artists in the world. And the only reason why they're doing this artwork is because they crave to hear these pleasant things from people when they hang up their art in a gallery or they hang up their art somewhere and they're craving these pleasant feelings from people's admiration and they only do the artwork for that reason. Well, that might drive a person for a certain period of time, but that admiration isn't permanent. Uh, someone may be into your art or you may be a popular artist, for example. Someone could be an artist for maybe 5, 10, 15, 20 years and then their artwork kind of goes out of style and it fades. Well, if somebody identifies with being an artist and that arrogance and that pride and that boastfulness and those pleasant feelings that they got for 10, 15, 20 years of being an artist, now when all that's gone because of impermanence, now they're crushed and they're shattered because they're no longer experiencing those same pleasant feelings anymore. And this is where sometimes celebrities go out and kill themselves, right? When they become less famous, right? And that's one of the reasons why is because the mind is shattered because it's like someone's pulled out the carpet under their feet because their mind was craving these pleasant feelings and they were identifying with this self and they were only doing this artwork because of those pleasant feelings. Well, now you've got another artist who doesn't have a self, who's been on this path and eradicated the self and just does the artwork because it's just something that's in them. They're very creative. They like putting colors together. They enjoy the artwork and they just do it because it's something that they really enjoy doing and it brings them joy because they get a chance to actually do this artwork. And they just so happen to share it with other people and other people just so happen to enjoy it. But this person doesn't identify with, I am the best artist, I'm so prideful, I've got to hear all these pleasant feelings from people or hear all these pleasant remarks from people in order to get these pleasant feelings from my artwork. I'm just doing it because it's something that I enjoy doing. This person is going to have a lot of longevity in what they're doing because they're just doing it because it's the right thing to do and they just enjoy doing it for the sake of doing it. They don't have any expectations or any wants of getting these pleasant feelings from hearing admiration from people. So in these two situations, they're both artists, but one's operating through a self and is ultimately going to get crushed where the other person has eradicated the self and they're just doing it because it's something that they find beneficial for their life. So you can express yourself creatively, either creative writing or artwork or other things, and do it because it's something that you enjoy doing and it's just something you enjoy without arrogance, without pride, without interest in being boastful. 
but also not necessarily feeling like you need to hide it from people either and just this is what I do and but not kind of attaching your self-image and your self-identity to the artwork because you may not be able to do it permanently depending on how you age or how you go forward in life so once the mind latches on to these things like artwork or being an artist and it identifies its self-image or self-identity through that activity that's where the mind's setting itself up to fail because it's falsely identifying with this activity of being an artist as being who they are as a person and then now when things shift because of impermanence that's when the mind becomes discontent because it no longer can hold on to being an artist because it's not an artist anymore this is where somebody can have a certain career and then 5 10 20 years technology changes or the job market changes and they no longer can have that job and they're crushed because they've identified their self-image or their self-identity through this particular career or occupation and now they're utterly crushed because that can no longer happen for them and it's because of the self that they're experiencing that discontentedness so by eradicating that that's where the mind can then reside peaceful calm serene and content with joy because if it's doing this job or it's doing this job or this hobby or this hobby it can be perfectly content either way um, uh, Holly has a question she says is pride always associated with self-image can you feel good about your accomplishments without identifying with it pride is part of conceit and the self is part of personal existence view these are two separate fetters in the mind Personal existence view is part of the lower fetters. It's the first fetter. That relates to the teaching of non-self. Pride is part of the conceit or arrogance, this boastfulness. And the mind's going to have to get rid of being prideful. You can feel good about your accomplishments. Just be like, all right, great, I got that done. But as soon as the mind becomes prideful about it, that's when the mind wants to put itself above others with arrogance. So the mind's got to ultimately eradicate pride. And that's why it's one of the upper fetters. And that's when the mind ultimately moves into enlightenment, when it eradicates the five upper fetters. And this is something that you have to cut off in the mind is when you feel pride coming in, like pride that you got a new house or a new car or that your kids are going to a good college or any number of things that are, the mind can be prideful about, you've got to cut that off and just do things because it's the right thing to do, not because the mind is seeking pride or wanting to feel prideful. So there's this fine line between I bought a new car because I needed a new car and boom, I've got a new car versus oh, wow, look, I got the brand new Mustang that just rolled off the lot, and I'm one of the only 10 people in the entire state that have this car, right? So you've got to find that middle where the mind is just content with the car, and it just sees it as transportation rather than something to be prideful about. Or you know that your family members, your sons are working to get into college and they're working to get into a certain college and you guys have been preparing over the last 5, 10 or 15 years to work towards that goal 
And then once they eventually get into their college, oh great, they got into their college, perfect. Rather than going around and kind of being prideful and boastful to people about what's happened. Our children getting into a certain college, there's no reason to go around and tell everybody what college our kid got into and that they're you know into this college now and they're getting good grades and they're gonna be a, a lawyer or a doctor. This is all coming from pride that kind of thing doesn't need to be broadcasted out to the world. But there's also nothing wrong with actively working towards that goal. But then once the mind finds pride in it and starts being boastful and starts broadcasting it out to people, that's where the mind can then create challenges in relationships when it starts becoming prideful around others. And it's that mind chasing those pleasant feelings. And that's why the pride is dangerous to the mind that if the mind allows pride to come into it, it's still chasing after those pleasant feelings. And then say that our child gets kicked out of the school after freshman year or sophomore year, now we're gonna experience painful feelings. Because we allowed the pride to invade the mind and absorb into the mind, now when that prideful thing is over because of impermanence, now the mind's gonna experience painful feelings. Right. So I know that in the past we've all been taught to be prideful and to be proud about various things. But then because of that pride, we're setting the mind up to experience painful feelings if we allow the mind to feel pride because of something. Well, that's all the questions for now, Okay. I only have one more thing to Oh no, I had a lot of things to share with you guys. Well, I thought I only had one more thing to share with you guys. Uh, we probably have to cover this on Wednesday because I thought that I was done, but I just remembered that we have all these other details to talk about related to meditation. So we will pick this up on Wednesday because we're two hours into our class. You guys had a lot of great questions. The last thing that I was planning to share with you guys is to never give up on your meditation practice because it is a practice. It's constantly developing your practice. Even if you've been meditating three months, six months, a year, two years, three years, you should constantly see your meditation practice as a work in progress and constantly developing your practice more and more and just never, never, ever give up. Some of the words from the Buddha he shared along the lines of never giving up is meditate monks do not be negligent, lest you will regret it later. This is my instruction to you. So he's essentially telling and guiding and suggesting to people to not be complacent. Because if you allow the mind to be complacent and be like, ah, I'm not going to meditate today, or ah, I'm just going to do five minutes and that's all I need to do today. If you allow that negligence or that complacency to come in, you're going to regret it later when the mind's discontent. When you're feeling the anger, when you're feeling the guilt, when you're feeling the shamefulness, when you're feeling the fear or the loneliness or the boredom or any of these other feelings that come into the mind, you're going to regret that you didn't dedicate time and effort to developing your meditation practice. And then if we don't attain enlightenment, then we're going to regret that too if we're reborn. The Buddha never used fear or guilt or shame to teach anybody anything on this path. This is the only thing that I've ever seen where he's kind of like nudging just a little bit like, 
hey, you're going to regret it if you don't meditate, right? So use this as a way of just thinking about don't ever give up on your meditation practice. There's times when you're doing breathing mindfulness meditation where it can feel very bored or very tired or very cumbersome. There's time when you're doing loving kindness meditation where you're trying to cultivate loving kindness, but all you feel is anger and all you feel is frustration. And all of these past experiences are invading the mind and all these past traumas and all this pain and misery that you've gone through in the past can be invading your meditation sessions. And that can go on for days or weeks or months, right? Don't ever, ever, ever give up because the reason why the mind is experiencing all these painful feelings is because we've just been sweeping the dust under the carpet our entire life. And now this pile has gotten bigger and bigger and bigger and we're starting to trip over it. And we're starting to have these problems in our life with a lot of discontentedness in different parts of our life. But now we're older and now we can make wiser decisions for ourselves. But even though we're older and we're starting down this path and we feel like we're walking the yellow brick road to peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy, there's going to be struggles. There's going to be challenges. There's going to be past experiences that invade our mind, either during meditation or during our daily life. And that can somehow dissuade people and kind of knock you down and make you feel like you should just give up. But if you give up, it's just sweeping the dust back under the carpet and precipitating the problem over and over and over. And that's the whole reason why these feelings are surfacing to begin with is because they've just been buried and they've just been repressed. But by training the mind and breathing mindfulness meditation, that when the thoughts come up, you cut them off and let them go. It's like wiping the slate clean. Or if there's certain people that you feel resentment or hostility or anger towards in your life and you practice loving kindness meditation, that's allowing those feelings to surface and then wiping it clean and getting rid of it. So you're pulling back the carpet and getting rid of all the dust under the carpet once and for all. If you give up in your meditation practice and you don't practice, then you're just sweeping the dirt back under the carpet. You know, if you've gone two or three days without meditating or even two or three weeks without meditating and you're kind of feeling a little bit disgruntled or complacent about your meditation practice, that's understandable. That happens to people sometimes. I went two or three years one time without meditating before I finally got back into it. So these kind of things happen for people. But don't let the two or three days turn into two or three weeks or two or three months or two or three years the way that I did. Because those two or three years that I wasn't meditating was probably the worst two or three years of my life ever. So don't allow those times to get longer and longer and longer where you're seeing that maybe you didn't meditate for a day or two. Maybe you gave the mind a little bit of a break. Okay, but jump back into it. Get back into it. Get back in the saddle, right? Because if you give up, then you're basically just going to keep sweeping everything under the carpet and things aren't going to get better. It's these teachings of training the mind in the entire Eightfold Path that is the escape. This is the ending of discontentedness. This is the elimination of discontentedness. This is the mind getting to peace, to elimination of those strong feelings, to enlightenment, to Nibbana, just like the Buddha said. So don't ever give up. 
and keep pursuing and keep progressing along this path. So that's what I was planning to share with you guys today. I'll cover that other bit on Wednesday to walk through the various parts of the book of detailing exactly what I was planning to talk about in relationship to meditation because it's important that you build up your practice piece by piece. And anybody who can attend live on Wednesday, remember you can listen to the playback either on the podcast, the YouTube, or in Facebook. You'll be able to hear what I taught on Wednesday related to the part that I'm not going to be teaching today. So let me just see if there's any final questions before we wrap things up for today. Hi, David. On this topic that you spoke about last, you mentioned in the book that the same thoughts motivating us to learn are the same that will try to persuade us to turn away. And I just found that to be a very powerful statement. And I wanted to know if you could perhaps elaborate just a bit on it. Yeah, you know, as the guilt or the shame or the boredom or loneliness or anger, frustration comes into the mind, that's what we're experiencing when we're off the path and unenlightened and we still experience that while we're on the path those feelings can be exactly what makes you feel like you want to give up because that stuff is still there and you know the mind is oftentimes looking for a quick fix you know it wants to snap the fingers and everything's fixed and that's just not how any of this works it's a gradual progress and those feelings are exactly what can motivate you to turn away and give up on this path because you feel like you're not making progress. But I suggest that you turn that upside down and use those feelings to actually motivate you and encourage you on this path. Because what else are you going to do to get rid of anger, frustration, or boredom, or loneliness, or guilt, or shame, or fear? What else have you ever tried in your life that has worked, that has given you that peace of mind? And anyone who's learning these teachings hasn't ever experienced that. Nothing else that you've ever tried to use or work through in your life has ever been successful. And that's why you're still at this. You're on a path that will absolutely 100% eradicate all of these discontent feelings. I can tell you with 100% certainty that what the Buddha said about the mind becoming stable and peaceful and steady and calm and all these other things, his teachings lead exactly where he said they would lead. It's just a matter of learning and progressing and practicing gradually. Don't allow the discontentedness, the whole reason why you've decided to pursue this path, don't allow that discontentedness to be the same reason why you give up on this path. Because the whole reason why you chose to walk down this path is because of the discontentedness. So as you experience that on this path, just know that you're going to still experience that for a while, all the way up until the mind attains enlightenment. You're going to go through periods where you'll have two or three days of complete peacefulness, and then boom, discontentedness. And then two or three weeks, and then boom, discontentedness. Or then maybe back to one day, and then boom, discontentedness. Boom, discontentedness. Boom, discontentedness. And then two or three weeks or two or three months, no discontentedness. And then boom, discontentedness. Boom, discontentedness, right? It's like this car keeps breaking down over and over and over again. But you got to keep fixing it. You got to keep working at it. You got to stay consistent with it. It's only when you're dedicated. It's only when you show determination and diligence that by sticking on this path, 
that the mind slowly, gradually progresses. And those people who stand the test, those people who remain diligent and determined, and you get to the two, three, four, five years of meditating, and you're learning these teachings along with it, and you're working with a teacher, and you're progressing in your practice, you're going to thank yourself for going through all those struggles. But if attaining enlightenment was super easy, everybody would already be enlightened. But it's also not as difficult and as challenging as some people think it is. The reason why it's so difficult for people is because they're not working with a teacher. They're not studying the pure teachings of the Buddha going back to the original source text. And they don't have the dedication and determination to actually stick with it. So in this situation, you've got a teacher that's more than willing and more than supportive and interested and encouraged to help you. You've got the source teachings directly back to the source that I know with 100% certainty, these are the teachings that will lead to enlightenment. All you need to do is continue to apply diligence, dedication, determination, continue to reach out and seek guidance and just keep chipping away at this thing day by day by day and know that there's going to be some days that are better than others and there's going to be some days that are worse than others and there's going to be some days where you want to just throw up your hands and give up on everything but through staying diligent and determined and dedicated as you progress through this and the mind eventually starts getting over the hump and you start getting more and more and more peacefulness you're going to just be so pleased that you worked through all these challenges and that's what your teacher's for is to reach out to your teacher when you're in those challenging spots and just say i need help and here's what i'm struggling with and yeah it's going to be a challenge it's not super easy but it's not super difficult either so finding that middle where you just gradually patiently progress slowly but surely and don't even think about the day where you're someday going to be completely peaceful in the mind just know that you're working in that direction and whenever it happens if it happens great but just constantly work forward just little by little by little and seek guidance as you need help because discontentedness is no fun and you know there's no going back from you know the way that i look at it is once you've seen the light, there's no going back. If you've seen even glimpses of a peaceful mind and you even know that certain portions of this path that you've seen so far are the truth, then there's really no going back because, you know, what else are you going to do? Just be discontent the rest of your life and multiple lives beyond this. Instead, just remain diligent and determined. Reach out to other members of the community you guys support each other reach out to your teacher for support just continue to pursue and the mind will just get better and better but of course there's going to be struggles along the way and that's where we're all here to support and help each other i wanted to just speak quickly about the value of reaching out to a teacher because it was just a couple days ago that i reached out to david and especially as i was beginning the practice there was times when I was disinclined to do that for different reasons, whether it's from shyness or not wanting to take up David's time or just being the type of person who tends to work on issues individually. But reaching out to David was just so helpful for me. And we all have questions about the practice and our experiences. And 
the level of depth that one can go into in a personal conversation is just so much deeper than one can really go into in a class where the teachings are being discussed in a more general way. So if anyone ever has any inclination to reach out or any questions or experiences, I just want to really encourage people to reach out and I think that you'll be glad that you did. Yeah, I'm pleased to work with any of you guys privately. You can sign up to schedule an appointment with me. They're no cost. They're completely open and free. And there's a link that you can schedule. And all of you guys have the option to do that. And remember, one of the most challenging things about this practice, I think, is to eliminate the ego, to eliminate that conceit, that arrogance, that pride. That's one of the most challenging things for everybody, I think. And by reaching out to a teacher and asking for help, just that by itself helps to eradicate some of the ego and the conceit because you're admitting to yourself, to the self at a certain level, I don't know what I'm doing here. I need help. And this can be really encouraging to improve the condition of the mind and eradicate some of that arrogance and pride by reaching out to a teacher. And I think that's part of kind of the built-in aspect of this path that of course you need a teacher to learn the teachings and reflect on them and practice them but there's kind of this built-in mechanism that by having a teacher it helps to eradicate the ego because the only way that you would seek guidance with somebody is if you're admitting to yourself that yeah i don't know everything and i need help here and that can really help to kind of chip away at any kind of conceit or arrogance that's in the mind by reaching out to somebody. And that's part of how this whole tradition works is having elders or senior people of the community that others who are coming into this practice can reach out to. And that can be really helpful to the ego and knock down some of that conceit. Thank you, David. That seems to be all that we have for today. All right. Well, on Wednesday, we're going to do loving kindness meditation. But before we get into loving kindness meditation, I'm going to share those details and go through each individual detail that I shared in the book and give you guys a chance to ask questions about them, about all the kind of different aspects of your practice. Like what do you do with the timing or frequency or duration of your meditation? What about external devices? What about visualizations and stimulation that you might experience? All the different aspects of meditation that we haven't covered yet. So far, we've covered the different types and we've covered the different positions. But on Wednesday, we'll cover in detail all the different little aspects of practice and give you guys a chance to ask those questions. And if we have time, then we'll do a loving kindness meditation session together on Wednesday as well. So continue to meditate, continue to learn. Be sure that you download the book if you haven't gotten the new copy of Developing a Life Practice, The Path That Leads to Enlightenment. There's a new version of that with about 80 or 90 new pages of content that I've expanded a lot of the chapters and I've made some of them uh, more clear, I think, uh, certain chapters that needed to be more clear. And I think there's just an overall better book that I am sharing with you guys now that you can download completely free. And of course, if you prefer a printed copy, you can take the PDF and go print that or Amazon also has the printed copies as well. So feel free to get that updated book because next Sunday we're going to be in chapter 12, which is different than the old book. The new book, chapter 12, is titled Craving is the Problem, 
what is the solution? And that chapter is an updated chapter and it's been moved to chapter 12. So on the old book, that was like chapter 16 and it wasn't as detailed as it is now. So be sure that you go to buddhadailywisdom.com forward slash free Buddha books. And from there, you can download the latest book and read this chapter 11, but also read the new chapter 12. Because here, chapter 12 through chapter 19, they've been reordered and they've been expanded. And the earlier chapters have been expanded as well. So I encourage you guys to start at the beginning and read all the way through the book gradually because you're going to pick up a whole lot more from what I've added to the book. But particularly if you're tracking along chapter to chapter, be sure you pay attention that next week is craving is the problem. What is the solution? And then on Wednesday, like I said, we'll do loving kindness meditation and then actually uh, make sure that we cover the items that we didn't cover today. So between now and then, have a lovely rest of your day and I'll see you guys in a future class or online in our Facebook group. Take care and we'll see you next time. Sawadee Thank you for listening to this podcast. To provide support for this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha. To access more teachings, visit buddhadailywisdom.com. There, you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Remember to establish a daily, consistent meditation practice, along with learning and practicing these teachings. A well-developed meditation practice is the foundation in which to train the mind to attain enlightenment.